0: Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rawlis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rawlis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. Today I'm joined by Amir Ogdai, who's CEO of Invista, which is a global enterprise made up of innovative dental companies that help dental professionals every step of the way. I've been very fortunate to get to know Amir over the past couple of years. And I will say he's maybe the most responsive person I've ever come across <laughs> and a super hard worker. So I've been impressed by the time I've got to spend with him. So I've used these discussions to kind of learn what's made individuals great or made businesses successful. And, you know, clearly he's had a ton of success in his career in building in Vista. So I'd like to talk to you about today is is sort of just some categories first, a little bit about your background, what's gotten you to the point of success that you're at today, learn a little more about your company and how you think about the future. And then lastly, just how you see the future of dentistry, what will shape patient experience and improve outcomes and inefficiencies. So if that sounds like a reasonable plan, I'll get started with a couple of questions. Yeah, please. All right. Well, thank you, Amir. First off, obviously you lead a large diversified global publicly traded company. Can you talk a little bit about the company just so everyone can kind of get your perspective on where you're coming from? Yeah. So Danaher is formed about probably 40 years
1: ago by two brothers. And what they did, the premise and Danaher was just to start identify markets that they were fragmented and had significant opportunity for consolidation and growth and really have a tremendous amount of runway. So they started identifying various markets and within those markets, they bought marquee brands that mostly they were founders companies that had a really good product, good reputation. And what then I used to do, just buy those and improve them through continuous improvement and not, the know-how around the entire business system and get them better and better operating and then use cash to just keep adding to it and then building this large platform. In 2005, we got into the dental industry over a 10-year time period. We bought about 30 different companies, implant companies such Nobel, Implant Direct, ABT, Ormco. Cavo and many other companies. So we bought all of these and brought them together by 2015. When we had a term in Dan, it was called Wallen told. When I was Voluntold, told to go okay. run bento, I had been with Dan for quite some time. I've done a bunch of other things. And the idea was that the time has come for us to start taking a broader view, 10-year horizon, and trying to figure out how does the industry taking shape and how we can kind of pull this together. So we started consolidating. We started to try to. See what's the synergy amongst various pieces. And by 2018, it became very apparent that we needed to deploy a whole lot of capital back into the business to stay ahead of the industry. By then, Danaher had moved to more of a life science diagnostics company, had spun off a bunch of different businesses, Tektronics communication piece, which I did with us to part of that, as well as Forty, which was an industrial tool company. So we decided that the best way for then told to continue to progress is to come out of that. So in 2019, we formed a company named Invista, publicly traded, September of 2019, we almost coming to about a four-year. We brought all of those businesses outside and we formed Invista, and we have been in the public domain for the past four years. That's a little bit of a history behind it. But what is Invista? It has four businesses. It has an implant business, about a billion dollar of three different various brands worldwide, Nobel, Implant Direct, and ABT. It has an auto business, about the 6,700 million million auto business, traditional bracket and wire with Damon system, passive self-divigation, as well as a clear aligner, call it the spark. It's about 400 $450 million equipment business, mostly 2D, 3D, iOS, plus some of the software piece, and the $600 million consumable business, restorative endodontics, as well as infection prevention, as well as horoscopic loops. So about 13,000 employees, about 2.6, dollars 2700000000 billion, and about a 20% EBITDA. So that's a little bit of our history pretty quickly, how InVista has come together.
0: So did you say september of 2019 was when you launched the yeah 19, september. so that was probably an interesting time to to start a company <laughs> six months <laughs> fast forward six months later so how was that during covid did that present yeah. any challenges
1: well, I'd been around it for quite some time by then, so we had a grand plan of what we wanted to do. We well, the strategy for longer, and so COVID presented a whole set of challenges because, <laughs> as you can imagine, David, they said nobody's going to go to dentists anymore at some yeah. point. march april I said, "Oh my God, we're yeah. a new company, don't have a whole lot of history in here. Would we be able to pay payroll in three yeah. months, six months down the road?" That was one part of the equation. The capitalist structure: how do you Make sure that you're sustainable. The other part of it honestly offered an opportunity for us to do a significant transformation as quickly as we could under this umbrella of people are not in office, people are not going to the dentist. So we radically changed the portfolio and we were able to close the gap versus a lot of our competitors from a margin perspective. So We sold, as you know, about a $400 million for our business. We shut down some of the businesses that they were not profitable. We bought three different companies over time. We really changed the portfolio over time. And we built a complete brand new factory with over 2,000 people in the middle of COVID. So unfortunately, or fortunately, i had been around this kind of a radical market shift in 2000 and 2008 and such. So there's a recipe we can apply when you are faced with Challenges such as that gives you an opportunity to transform the business that otherwise in normal times is going to be more difficult. So we were able to do all of that in 2020 and
0: 2021. Yeah. We kind of had a similar, I mean, a much smaller scale, kind of a similar situation in that we had like formally launched Paradigm in May of 2019. And that, you know, is definitely a shock to us you know, not being able to see patients are very few. But I remember thinking like, you know, it's kind of an unfortunate opportunity and that most people struggle to do well and stay motivated even in like the very best times. So I remember telling our team like, okay, this isn't our, if we can manage to like show up every day and work extra hard and sort of think about growth more, I mean, it's either going to be a terribly bad decision or we're going to be very fortunate. So, you know, fortunately COVID ended and the decision to like step on the accelerator harder and, and focus more and invest more during that time turned out.
1: That's that's exactly what it is. The other thing is about partnership and relationship. The people that you reach out to at the time of stress, they will remember that when you are in a much better situation. I'm I'm telling you a very simple story. We have like a small gym in the area that we live in and obviously nobody's going to the gym. So we reach out to them and say, hey, we can give you a little bit of cash as long as you give us a, it's not a yearly thing because we don't know when you're going to come back. So yeah, absolutely. So we did that. That was 2020, three years, four years later. They are still appreciative of our business and they are really treating you very, very small thing. It's not a big, and same thing. We reached out to a lot of people, a lot of customers, a lot of partners that say, we're here for long run. We want to work with you. And it really paid off because they know that you can depend and trust them at the time of distress or at the time that they are better, then you know who to depend on.
0: Yeah, I think it really means a lot to work with people that, you know, want to really work with you. That goes way beyond the dollars and cents, I feel like. Exactly, exactly. So I think you had told me that you're an engineer by background, and I'm yeah. like jealous of that. I like, <laughs> I feel like I wasted college on a you know stupid biology degree. <laughs> I wish I had learned to actually do something. But what's your background been like from where you started to how did you become CEO of this huge company? <laughs>
1: well, you know, you would have asked me this. 20, 30 years ago, I would have never would have told you, oh, that's I'm going to be sitting and having this conversation. I grew up in Iran, and I was the first grandson of a very prominent person that was really into education and giving back to the community. So <laughs> forced me, pushed me as hard as it could. So I finished college when I was 16 years old, and I got an industrial engineering degree of the University of Tehran, which is equivalent of a kind of Georgia Tech model. And then I'm I'm the last group of people who graduated in Iran during Shah's time before Khomeini came. And then going to military, it was kind of mandatory because you didn't pay for college. You went and you give something back like Israel and other places. So about eight weeks through the boot camp, The war started between Iran and Iraq, and I was an engineering officer at age 20. And with a group of people, I ended up going to war for two years. And that combination of engineering plus that experience has has such a profound effect. In simply put, not to get too dramatic, is about valuing the things that you have and you're not letting things to go to waste every opportunity. So by the time I got here in 1982, I felt like I've been given a second chance to have an opportunity to kind of build something different. So I went to school, I got my applied mathematics degree, computer science degree while working full time and doing that. I got TA. Since I was really good in math, I was teaching and IBM came to school, hired us as an intern. And then Hewlett-Packard offered kind of a position. But in return, I told them they have to pay for my MBA. <laughs> Because I didn't have money to pay for it. So so they agreed to pay for MBA if I worked for them. So I went to Hewlett-Packard, and I worked there for quite some times in the life science part of Hewlett-Packard. Gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, in manufacturing, R&D, sales support. I lived in Europe for about five years. I came back and went to the test and measurement part of Hewlett-Packard. Was in the middle of the rise of a telecom and was running a big businesses then, and the fall of the telecom and dot com in two thousand moved a lot of his stuff to Asia, factories and worked with contract manufacturers. Christy and I have been married for twenty two years, but we had known each other for quite some time. So our first son was born in Denver, our second son was born in Singapore. So we lived in Singapore for four or five years, and then. You know, one thing led to another. Eventually, I ended up in Danaher and in a variety of different businesses. I was the president of the largest acquisition that Danaher did in 2007, 2008 called Tektronics. And what do you know? 2008 happens. (laughs) So, but the company is the largest acquisition. Business dropped by 35% in the first quarter. I'm the president of it. So, I don't know. Unfortunately, every time I've shown up, something has been a challenge, but they have made Good with it. We bought seven companies in a period of like two years and improved margin by about a thousand basis point. And one thing led to another. I managed different businesses. I was the president of Danaher Russia in 2012 to 2014 during the Crimea crisis and when Russia forced annex Crimea. Managed a whole lot of innovation and stuff inside Danaher and managed the communication business. So simply put, David, wherever it was there was a Opportunity or a problem. They've all
0: told you. they <laughs> all
1: told me. So when I came to the dental in 2015, I really didn't know anything about the industry. I came in the fresh set of the eyes, tried to take a look at it to see what the trends are, where the opportunities, and kind of one thing led to another. And unfortunately, every time, or fortunately, every time I made a recommendation that we should do this, I said, okay, good recommendation, go do it. So <laughs> so, be careful so what you recommend <laughs> <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished so a lot of that been very fortunate I've always focused on what I can control and do try to be truthful and honest and be a role model you know humble beginning humble background and try to give something back a lot of people has helped me I'm trying to do the same thing and it's worked out you know just ended up launching this company and trying to make a difference in people. We got 13,000 employees make a difference in their lives, hopefully make a difference in what you do and how you treat patients and create value for our shareholders in the process. That's what mm-hmm. it's, it's simple. it's really not that complicated. more difficult to execute it, but the priorities and what we want to do is not that really that complicated.
0: One of the things, you know, trying to draw some corollaries, you know, that all of us as surgeons in our group, you know, I think we have pretty hectic schedules trying to move from room to room and not keep people right. waiting and still have to get home at the end of the day and all these things. I've noticed that you, you're super proactive and respond and seem to be extremely organized. And I remember you telling me at one point that you, and I may be wrong, but I think you had said that you quit driving or limited your driving so that you could have less downtime and be just more productive and efficient. Yeah. And I think as surgeons, we're always like trying to think about like, how can we sort of reach that next level of, yeah. of exceptional efficiency. So what are kind of your advice to optimize your time? Because it's probably you know, biggest well, commodity. Outside
1: the behavioral thing, which I, <laughs> and my wife says, I'm a pain in the ass on everything. <laughs> everything got to be in the same place. Put that aside. It's yeah. of you know, I think the most valuable thing that I have, all of us have is time. And I take a look at it and say, okay, how much my time worth? In fact, some of you you know, some of your surgeons may know that I asked this question, how much your time is worth? And then the next thing I go down this path of industrial engineering, time and motion study. what do you do every day? Walk me through what you do every day. And let me just take a number just for simplicity. Say, you know, my time is worth $1,500 an hour. And so at the end of the day, I got to produce $12,000, right? And I say, okay, walk me through your day. What do you do? And I'm not judging, but based on my own assessment, the best of the best, they spend 50% of their time doing the stuff that somebody else should be doing $15 an hour or $150 an hour rather than $1,500 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I think about this. I say, okay, 10 hours, $15,000. That's your time. $15,000 is a significant amount of money for your assistant for people around you is 10%, 15% salary increase. And sometimes we think about, oh, you know, $10,000. If you can reduce your workload by one day and give somebody $10,000 extra, that gives you tremendous amount of freedom to operate. So ability to do time management efficiency of what you do, where you spend your energy. And then it's structure, rigor on managing your email, managing your time. I can tell you six months from now, our vacation is already in our schedule. I tell you, you know, about three months in advance where I'm going to be in any place, what meetings I plan. So it takes a little bit of a rigor. I spend half an hour with my assistant every week, take a look at the rolling three months, planning those in advance and try to kind of don't do the things that, I don't have to be involved and somebody else can do it. Maybe I got to spend a little bit of time right up front to teach him and help him and coach him. And no, I don't have to do it. They do it. They may not do it as good as you do, but it's done. And I'll put my energy around things that I can have the most value that nobody else can do. It's just a very simple methodology. I try to teach people, talk about it. Some people are having a really hard time. They get into the firefighting mode and the stress. I say this all the time and people don't believe it. I'm not stressed at all. I work out every day. I take weekend, I go hiking, biking. You know, I take yoga and Pilates and spend, I spend time with my kids and family. And I feel like very manageable. And I see a lot of people that they're really frantic about what they do. And I think it's, maybe I'm oversimplified. It's the issue of priority setting and allocation of your resources and time. And then it brings us back to digitization plays a, such an important role in here in taking waste out of the system, out of your day-to-day basis. So hopefully that's a little bit of a framing in that.
0: Yeah. No, as I've got to work with and get to observe, you know, hundreds of different surgeons over the past four or five years. I've definitely noticed those that seem to have, you know, maybe even certainly the most efficiency, most productivity, but probably even the most satisfaction and the most patient satisfaction and best outcomes are the people that really kind of learn to leverage their team and train the people around them and be proactive and not absolutely. trying to do absolutely everything themselves because you, you, it's just an, an uphill battle that you're never going to win. You're never going to win. Well, but to kind of change gears a little bit along, you said digitization and things. you get to see obviously tons of different technologies. What are the areas of dentistry that really excite you the most about the future?:
1: You know, I started in a very simple thing. It's about, I would say those adaption to be extremely successful. They do a really nice job on segmentation. Who are the target customers? Who are the target patients? Who are the one that target support the staff that they need to do? And then create this self-service model. And you, you guys know this a lot better than we do, having recruitment challenges and all that. The more you can create self-service model, the more productive it is, the more you can put the control in the hand of patients. And so what an example of it. Example, time management. Just let people take a look at schedule there themselves, invoicing, hand that back to them in order for them to, do. they like to do that a lot more than asking a bunch of questions going back and forth. Let me just give you one example. I'll come back to it. I was in Prague. Prague is one of our major centers and we get like 1,500, 2,000 calls a day. And I asked people, what are these calls? 40% of these calls are order management. And I said, I buy a 99 cents pair of socks in Amazon. I know when I'm gonna get it. Control is in my hand. Our customers have spent $20,000 buying a piece of equipment and they have to call to ask, where is it? When is it gonna show up? And handing some of that responsibility back to the customers, we have it. So so what, what does that mean for the dental offices? Wherever I have seen that take place, Tools such as dental monitoring, scheduling on time, things like that. It really brings tremendous amount of productivity, but also customer satisfaction. To me, that's a starting point. This segmentation of your customer demand generation and that handing over responsibility when somebody identifies, I want to be your patient. Then the moment you walk into the offices, it's all about diagnostics. I mean, you guys do that every day. I'm just an observer of it. Dentists, surgeons, they select what they want to buy a 2D, 3D, iOS, and then they have nothing to do with it after that. It goes in a two meter by two meter area or assistant. But thinking about a little bit about the workflow that I did that, I took that. X-Ray, I did that iOS. What is the next step look like? How do I bring all these images? How do I apply annotation? There are millions of images that you guys take all the time. Spending a little bit of time using AI, trying to kind of consolidate. So, well, I know what I'm doing is therefore I don't need it. I agree. But think about hundreds of other people that you're going to hire, you bring to your organization over time. If you have that knowledge, if you take the skills, if you take that art and digitize it, then the skills become standardized. It doesn't minimize your value, it makes you more valuable. Let me, let me give you one example, and this regenerative AI. German German government, they decided, okay, we can approach the regenerative AI as a job reduction, Jobs are going to AI, therefore, or you can use it as skill enhancement. The jobs of the future are the one that people are going to be able to read those and make things happen and, and be a decision maker using the AI. So if we are spending a little bit of time on workflow optimization in office, and then leveraging some of that AI capability to get more productivity, hand over some of the work to other people. I think you can be a lot more productive. And then there are a set of tools. It's, not everybody buys into it, but I've been with some of your own surgeons and I've seen it in other places. A young or surgeon, not even 40 years old, told me that I put four patients side by side. I've trained my people. They set up everything else, and I use navigated, guided, and I just go from one office, one chair to the next, and I do four surgery in a row. Staff is really happy because they feel like uh, they play a much bigger role. I know what I'm doing. I can replicate that model. AI, robotic, guided, and then I think 3D printing offers tremendous amount of potential in the long run. To begin with, if you can print a barrier, if you can print a temporary crown, not send it to lab, and sometimes in the future, with the material become more robust, being able to do that same day, place it right there. And if you don't start waiting for perfect answer to come true, you're always going to be behind. So the balance of do I want to, interrupt what I do to apply the technology versus continue doing what I'm doing until it's perfect. Something that you guys got to figure out for yourself. I'm an early adopter. I am somebody who want to be at the edge of everything and learn it and put it to use. And I understand if you have a successful practice and you don't want to mess around with things, I get it. But, you know, you asked me, what are some of the things I'm excited about? Anything software related around AI? Anything related to diagnostic capabilities that gives you treatment planning, you know, Clear Aligner is already using it. You know a lot better than I do that design capabilities inside implants is a huge challenge in here. There is opportunity for optimizing some of that, navigated, guided, and eventually 3D printing. I think those are some of the things I'm really excited about what I see happening in the next five to 10 years.
0: I would agree. Those seem like the areas of opportunity and growth. The thing that I am sort of like jealous of business, you know, like sort of like a business to business business like yours or even business to consumer versus like what we do, which is you could say business to consumer, but it's more of like doctor to patient, which is sort of like a very sacrosanct type of, you know, relationship. And I love to think about retail healthcare providing quality and convenience in addition to everything else and sort of taking a retail approach to it. Because I think that's, you know, we're providing value differently in dentistry, probably even more so than medicine, where if someone's just going to kind of somehow magically pay for this thing that happens in medicine, but in dentistry, like someone's going to actually have to decide that it was worth their money because they're probably paying for a lot of it themselves. So it's a really unique opportunity to focus on the experience and really help the patient or deliver value to the patient. But I found it hard to like find something as it relates to AI, that really directly at the point of service, like how we utilize that to actually provide better service. I think it's all the things that surround our surgery is the opportunity for us. I was talking to someone the other day, a CEO of a large company who said that for them, their call center, it was like amazing because they didn't have to like audit calls and like, they could just do that with AI and tell people like how they were doing. And I was thinking about that and like, well, most oral surgeons probably didn't you know we aren't, we're most of us aren't operating huge call centers so we probably don't even have like some spectacular quality control for our calls so for us maybe it's not like replacing people but now we have a process in place that we couldn't have had before you know based on the size of our businesses and things so like i think that's that's very similar to what you were saying so i think all the things around surgery around what we actually do how we make the people around us better is might,
1: be, David, maybe maybe and obviously i'm coming at it from a different perspective you got to very custom, tailored, personalized, one-on-one relationship that you do one at a time. And the beauty of that is it's just because it is customized, personalized, and all that, and that's why people are willing to pay for it and you have credibility and you get that. I get it. Awesome. How do I scale this customized model? How do I make it bigger so you can provide more support. I can digitize it. Right? I'm doing whatever, 10,000 implants. I can do 100,000 implant. I can't have 10 times bigger number of oral surgeons that rapidly. We know how, how long does it take. So how do I do? That's the problem I'm trying to solve. The problem statement is I love this, this personalized, customized thing. How do you 10X it? In order to 10X it, you got to figure out what is first Low hanging fruit is what do I do that I shouldn't be doing, and there is possibilities for somebody else to do it or take the waste out of the system. We have a process we call value stream mapping. You take a look at any product, account receivable, account payable, IT things. We'll say, but what's the journey? What's the customer journey look like today? We go through that whole process. Then we start measuring to see what is the biggest waste. What that trader look like, how do I take that to be optimized? I take the next thing, I take the next thing, I take the next thing. That's the notion of Kaizen and continuous improvement. And if you apply that, and there are sales, manufacturing sales inside our factories, they go through that process every month. They look at it, improve it, they put the, Q-dip, uh, the quality delivery inventory productivity board up, take a look at it. Huddle up every day, next day, next day, next month, they improve it. It takes 15 minutes of huddle up every morning. And I've seen this in some of the dental offices 15 minutes with a specific set of measures. You huddle up, you decide what works yesterday, what was the biggest waste, you identify it, you improve it, you come back at it again, you come back at it again, and you optimize it, optimize it, optimize it until you get the end. I want to see more patients. I don't want to lose that personal relationship. I don't want to change the model that has made me successful. I want to be more productive. Easy for you to say, we're doing it every day. Yeah. We need every aspect of our business. And I'd love to be able to come to an office, <laughs> to one of your offices, to spend a day to go through that process with one of you to figure out, okay, What's the next day look like? Where do we it requires a little bit of upfront work similar to what we talked about, training the staff, doing that to get more of it? And you said, Well, I'm already too busy, I can't do that. Then okay. <laughs> but that's how we, yeah. you know, he said, What what makes Dana successful? What are some of the companies? It's not like we got incredible product that nobody else has. It's not like we got Millions of the TikTok followers that they are paying us for. It's improving things every day. The things that everybody else is doing. Gross margin, account receivable, inventory, account payable. That's how you improve the margin and EBITDA and growth.
0: Well, I always tell my team, if this is as good as it gets, like that's great, but just don't tell me because i don 't want to come back tomorrow <laughs> if we can 't get any better than this like it's what makes it fun and you guys I, have done that by the way i i can,
1: <laughs> I can see it i'm watching it you're doing it
0: well, we certainly try hard i don't think there's ever been a day where I couldn't have done more surgery or didn't want to do more so I mean certainly had some very, very hard surgery days, but i don't think i've never like reached my capacity or nor have probably most surgeons. And, you know, I think we're just kind of wired to want to do more surgery. It's it's fun to do. Yeah. And I think implants, you know, become pretty addictive. It's a fun procedure to do. It's rewarding to see the results people get. And there's so much need for it. So it's like, how do we do it in a cost effective way? I mean, how can we bring down the cost so that it's available to more patients? And, and maybe it's not even about cost so much, but you know, certainly would be a nice thing to be able to do for society. But I think you had mentioned at one point that and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's about 5 million implants placed in the U.S. annually and that there's a potential that, you know, if people were treatment planning, what would be in the best interest of patients and the care was available, not even if the economy changed dramatically or everybody won the lottery, but just if people were getting the treatment planned and the care was being delivered, that there'd be about a 10 times opportunity right. for more implants. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah. yeah. So let me give you some specific numbers. So these are, oh my God, sign and put it in the <laughs> <same> day, but <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. give you some numbers. In 2012, 13 million people worldwide they received an auto-treatment. Half a million people they got a clear aligner. In 2022, 16 million people they got an ortho treatment and four to four and a half million people they got a clear aligner. In 2012, this spending Insurance, government, out-of-pocket, in that space was $45 billion. In 2022, that spending was $70 billion. $25 billion additional spending because of digitization, because of iOS, because of GPs doing clear aligners, and because of orthodontists, they're doing more cases. Let me take Uh you to the implant space. In 2012, 7 million implants were placed, 90 million three-unit bridges, 25 million dentures. You all know, three-unit bridges, five years, seven years, 10 years. Insurance and all those other stuff send you down that path. Bring it to 2012. 14 million implants placed worldwide, 14, 15 million implants worldwide. Three unit bridges, 100 million. You know, the dentures, 30 million. Spending has gone from about $80 billion to about $120 billion. Total spending on all of them. Okay, I'm going to take a step back. So, what would it take to get that 16, 17 million implant to be 35, 40 million? What would it take on the United States to get that four or five to be 30 or 40 million? that 10X. I constantly mm-hmm. think about that 10X. A few things need to happen. We're to take some of those three unit bridges and change it to implant. It makes no sense. It costs the same amount of money. It's not repeatable. You've got to come back at it. We've got to get some of the dentures to do full arch restoration. So what is $25,000 versus $2,000? Yes, but there are a whole set of Other things that you can do to make that transformation happen. To me, dentistry is limited for three reasons. Skill, cost, pain. If you can innovate around those three areas to bring it down, it is not the supplier. I'm not trying to pitch for investor. If you charge $3,000, $25,000 for four hours, we get less than 10% of it. We get less than 5%. Where is the cost? Where is the rest of that cost? Sure, time, repeat thing. Well, let's take some of that cost out. Let's try to see what you can do. I'm not suggesting you reduce your prices. I'm suggesting that you do a lot more of it. Do a lot more of that through that discussion that we had on the digitization, cost management, base management. I think the possibility on implant in United States is untapped and has tremendous amount of potential. And I think the change it's not going to come because you have a lot of GPs to place one, two, five impact. It's oral surgeon. The people who are placing 100, 200, 300 do 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 because majority of it is in data space anyway.
0: So I kind of used to think about that too, that you know, it's sort of like someone going from 100 to 200. But I've started to realize it's kind of harder for someone to go to 100 to 200 than for someone who has 1,000 to go to 1,200 or 1,400. So I kind of like the idea of leaning into like really high performers. And that might be where you have even more opportunity, or better yet, you get the person who does 100 to do 1,000 and then to do 1,400. But sometimes it's the people that really have things dialed in that can almost flex further. So I look at the technology
1: adoption. Who normally adopt technology? Two group of people. Newcomers that they don't know anything, they want to get fast and, and then experience people, the people who see the value of it. Mm-hmm. So I was in oral surgery in Washington, D.C., and this doctor showed me a use of XNAV that he has been practicing in 25 years. And then he said to intern, after about three months, they are able to do as good a job as I do under the current you know, technology algorithm. And I can do 25, 30% more per day than I did before. So you got two ends of this spectrum. You got to have people or surgeons. you got to have the best in class champion it. They have to tell other people that this works because they have tremendous amount of influence and they can show prove it. And then you got to get some of these newcomers that they're so excited. They are looking at the new thing, jump in and, It's going to happen from the two ends, not from the middle. Yeah. And that's what we are really excited about. Companies like yours, who is the one end, and then newcomers. So we find this boutique, up-and-comer, small group practices, three, four, five. They're trying to do something radically different through digitization, downtown Chicago, Raleigh. Barcelona, four or five that say, oh, we want to do something radically different in here. And they use digital capabilities to compete with big DSOs or others. And I think that's where the trend and the change is going to come in place.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One more topic around, I guess, technology in some regards. You know, the last four or five years, I've sort of spent a lot of my time around data and predictive analytics. Right. And you, know, you just talked a lot about a lot of different numbers and I'm sure you've got a ton of data in your mind. How do you use data in your company and you know, how would you suggest from yeah. a you know, doctor perspective how we should be thinking about using data in the future or in yeah. dentistry more broadly?
1: This is a little bit of a Danaher, and we have, you know, it's not being disrespectful, but in a day-to-day, anybody who started offering me opinion, <laughs> you have an opinion? I have my opinion. My opinion is more important. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I'm gonna buy my opinion. Yeah. So just give me facts, give me data, give yeah. me penetration, give me concentration, give me segmentation, give me just I had breakfast with one of our wraps, imaging wraps, a few weeks ago. He comes in, he says, Hey, I'm sitting in Oregon, I have southern Washington as well as Idaho. There are 3,000 dentists in this area. I know 2,000 of them. They have this kind of penetration. They do that level of, the moment he start talking data and facts, I know exactly what's going on with the competitive dynamic. Where is the customer segmentation look like? And we have to teach people how to do that. And we have to give them a little bit of a kind of a script that these are the minimum requirement that you need to have. When you have that, then we can have a fact-based conversation, and then opinion and experience comes in place. Then move the opinion, oh, we have done it for the past 30 years, of the equation, because it doesn't work. Great. I'm glad that you have it. Future is different than what you have seen in the past 20 years, and if you want to form the future, you got to have understanding of what has taken us to where we are today. I am extremely data oriented, fact-oriented, and mathematic, industrial science, but yeah. also DBS and Danaher and now yeah. and Vista on every decision, everything I do. Use data that's gonna help me. And what the, the beauty of data is it forces you to continuously revisit that. Versus, if you have opinion, you know, you buy your own, drink your own Kool Aid, and some people say yes because you're the boss. Then after a while, you just believe
0: in your own uh, hypothesis. Facts don't lie to you; data yeah. do not lie. Yeah, I think using data to inspire people is it's just it's a beautiful tool because it's impartial, it's not biased, it's not you know, it's not really threatening or insulting. It just just is what it is. And I love how you can sometimes like to realize that you were completely wrong or something that you did for years because you just kind of thought that was important. I love that when I come across things. It's like, geez, man, I've put so much emphasis into this my whole life. Turns out it's, it wasn't important at all.
1: This is just a good thing. You know, one of the key pieces I look for hiring people and looking for talent is intellectual curiosity. And, you know, how do you satisfy that curiosity is with constantly observing, learning, improving your assessment of the environment, you're not stuck in a place. You're not stuck. That's the way we do things. Uh, in this environment, you know, you got to be constantly in the evolution and change perspective. And people say, oh, change is difficult. Change is life. It's not difficult. It is life is equal change. And if you master it, if you know how to manage that to go forward, then hey, you have a much better quality of life. Simply put, that's what it is.
0: I think like as business leaders or people thinking to invest, you sort of have to think about, you know, get comfortable with data is is actually kind of expensive because, you know, the people that are experts in this area are not cheap to employ and how you set up your practice management software and common data sources and all these things, they are definitely a real investment that don't really immediately pay dividends. So you have to be pretty forward thinking I've noticed in terms of embracing those investments. So
1: it brings us back to what's the role of a leader, and what's your role in your office, in your business, and use those facts, use the data to improve productivity, get people to win more. Yeah, more successful. We can do that. You have loyalty, you have followership, you have retention, have a higher chance of success. People don't need people going and telling them, asking them, "What have you done today?" People need people who's going to come and tell them, "Hey." Let me help you be more productive. Let me show you what the best practices are other places. My job is to make you successful. If I can do that, I don't have to be concerned about loyalty and where else are you going to go that somebody is going to have your back, teach you, make you
0: better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, lastly... For anyone, you know, dentists or or surgeons in our group that are listening, if you had just one thing or one idea to tell someone that they should take back to their practice tomorrow and and implement or make a priority, what would that be? Take a look at your staff and your workflow Uh and just
1: map the patient journey in your practice. What steps do they go through? Ask them, take it through, ask your staff. to to what they do every day. Take a little bit of time, identify what's the best thing I could do to make patient life journey a lot easier, make my staff more productive. The first time is a little bit more difficult. Then after that, you can keep doing it and keep improving what you do.
0: Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like great advice. And Amir, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. As always, I learned a lot and we should do this again. <laughs> thank you, David. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept.